Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what a joy it is to fellowship with the saints here and to remember the Lord and to show forth his death, uh, to also um, celebrate motherhood. And I know uh, a day like this in a fallen world can be a grieving day for some, would be a day of angst, grieving because they may have lost their mother or a child, angst because uh, they may not be a mother yet. But as we think of, of the fact that it was through the mother that our Savior was born, and that when Jesus, he was named Jesus, meaning to say that, that he will save his people from their sins. And so we take joy, we celebrate, even on a day like this, and knowing that there's coming a time when every tear will be wiped, every sorrow will be removed. So I'm thankful for our God, who we've come to uh, worship together. The passage that's been given to me is from Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And the passage is from verses 31 to 35 and also from 57 to 75. So it's in two parts. I won't read it right now, but um, as, we, uh, as we come back, uh, we'll go verse by verse. Uh, but as a church, you've been doing uh, the book of Matthew. Matthew's narrative is addressed to the Jews. And he wants people to know that this is about Jesus Christ, who is the king, is the king of the Jews. He's the savior who's awaited. He is the new Moses who would bring about the the second exodus or the great exodus. He is Jesus who will deliver his people from their sins. He is the king prof promised. The wise men would come and ask, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? When you get to chapter 5 to 7, we see the king's manifesto, the, the kingdom manifesto as it were, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the uh, one of the things that you would uh, you were, you would have become familiar with is what we call the fulfillment formula, because Matthew would at least fifteen times write, "This is to fulfill that which was spoken." He is trying to say that who the prophets have been speaking about is this one. This is the one. And so it is as if all the roads are leading to the confession that Peter makes in Matthew 16. You are Christ of God. And the gospel should have ended there because that's what it is all about. That once you know who this Jesus is, that is great. But what happens is there are two kinds of group, two kinds of people. There are the rejectors and they are the receivers. They are the rebellious, they are the responders. They are the believers and the unbelievers. And as Matthew proceeds with his gospel, he is trying to bring home this point. And today, this morning, for us, that we fall in either of these two 
categories. We either believe or we don't. We either receive or we reject. There are no more, there's no gray areas, there's nothing in between, just these two. And so the question we got to ask as we come to this is who we are. And I'm going to uh, draw your attention to three characters in the passage that we have. There are quite a few other characters, but I want to draw your attention to three characters. And I want to title today's sermon as Caiaphas, Cephas, and Christ. Caiaphas, who's the high priest. Caiaphas uh, in Greek or Cephas in English. That's Peter, Simon Peter. And then you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage, it becomes clear for us, hopefully, as the Spirit of God will speak to us, who we are or who do we align with most, and may God speak to us. But let's just pray. Father God, as we look to your word, we pray that you would speak to us through your Spirit. Not, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be glory for your steadfast love and faithfulness. It is your word that feeds us. It is your word that instructs us, that rebukes us, that corrects us. So keep us from distraction. Keep us, Lord. Oh, Father, we pray focused on your son. And I pray that if there is any idols that we have raised up, that will be broken and that you will be glorified. Indeed, if there's anyone here who does not know you, oh, may today be the day that they will understand that there is a God in heaven who sent his son to die for their sins and that they can be in the family of God. Be glorified to God, we pray. We thank you again in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. So first, let's look at Caiaphas. I'm going to bring your attention to Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is the picture of the rejecter, the rebellious, the unbeliever. In fact, uh, he has a title as the New Testament Balaam because of the position, the role that he takes, the behavior in which he deals with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to check out his character, we might have to spill outside of the passes that we have because we don't hear too much about Caiaphas. And so I'm going to review quickly uh, from a little before the passage and a little after the passage, but draw, as it were, a picture of who this Caiaphas is. Now, uh, the meaning of his name is not very clear. Uh, there are two options. One is the basket uh, person, like he was really a basket case. So that's, that might be his. But it also means rock from the root word Caiaphas or, or uh, you know, Cephas also is rock. And so we see that we are really dealing with three characters who might bear the name a rock. Caiaphas, Cephas, and Christ. Christ, we, as we... Uh, as we remember this morning, take me to a rock that is higher than I. And so that's beautiful. And so we have to ask, what have we understood? And which of these rocks do, do we really um, uh, trust, trust in? A little background on Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of uh, Annas. Annas is the high priest, but he was deposed by the Roman Empire. 
but the Jews would still acknowledge him as the high priest. And so you would see Annas as the high priest, and also time when Jesus was brought, he was first taken to Annas, not, and then to Caiaphas, right? So he uh, is first mentioned, that is Caiaphas is first mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 2. It'd be good for us to turn there, or if you want me to turn, I can turn and I'll read to you. Luke chapter 3, verse 2, that during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, what is happening here is that the word of God has passed over Caiaphas and this high priest. It has gone to John the Baptist in the wilderness. It's a reflection of what happened with Eli during, this, during Samuel's time that the word of God was scarce at that time and then Samuel gets to hear God's word. And that is what is the first mention of Caiaphas that we see. So now let's turn just to a little on the same chapter. If you turn with me to verse 3. We see there that then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So he plots to kill Jesus. That's in this passage that we see. Now, he had earlier prophesied, uh, John chapter 11 would tell us, that he prophesied that it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. As, so what is happening here is even though God's word had moved over from this high priest, he still gets to prophesy the essence of the gospel. Because that's what the gospel is all about. Substitution, the, the penal substitutionary atonement. And what we learn here then is the fact that even though the Jewish priesthood is going to be set aside in Annas and, and to Caiaphas, the, the office of the priesthood will continue through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says that it's better for this one man to die, and he plots to kill Jesus. And not just kill Jesus, but John chapter 12 tells us that he wanted to kill even Lazarus. Because of him, many people were now turning away. Um, when Jesus was doing his miracles in Galilee, it was okay because that was, that was far removed. But this is uh, walking distance from Jerusalem. It's too close home. And so he plots to kill Jesus is how this chapter actually begins. But we're coming into the passage that we were given. We'd have to go down to verse 47, and that's where we... We see what he does is he provides soldiers for his arrest. While he was still speaking, that is Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. What is happening here is this excessive force that is deployed. It tells two things. One is that he expected a threat. A threat maybe from Jesus, maybe from the crowd, but if he was expecting a threat from Jesus, then I think he was sadly mistaken. He thought, you know, just sending a huge battalion of soldiers would be okay. 
And I was foolish, of course. And then there is this cowardliness because he does not do anything when the crowd is there. He didn't, didn't want to do anything during the feast, but in the evening when he's by himself with his disciples is when uh, he sends this soldiers to go arrest Jesus. But the beautiful story that we continue to read is in verse 52. Jesus tells Peter to put the sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. What Jesus is saying, lay down your sword for I'm going to lay down my life for now I'm the Lamb of God. I'm Jesus. I've come to take away the sins of the world. And so he gets, he's arrested, he's seized, he's taken away. Come down to verse 59. When you come to verse 59, you see, see him come up again. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They wanted to prosecute Jesus falsely. Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 10, that even Pilate did not buy it. Even Pilate knew that this is out of envy that they had delivered Jesus. He was supposed to be the high priest who would represent people to God, but now he stands accusing God to the people. That's what Caiaphas is doing. But let's go down to verse 63. And Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you. So with a Greek emphasis, if I were to read, this is how it reads. I instruct you with a force of law by God Almighty that you tell me whether you are the Messiah. And Jesus speaks. Because under oath, if Jesus were to remain silent, it is almost acknowledging or denying what he has been accused of. And so Jesus speaks. And he speaks and he says, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power, right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is saying, I, I stand before you false, falsely accused, but there's going to come a time. I'm the judge. You're going to stand in my presence. And so what does he do? 64 and 65. Uh, let me read 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Now it's interesting how Caiaphas does this because he's, he's perjuring himself. He, he, he's actually accusing Jesus of blasphemy when he himself does the unspeakable because Leviticus 21.10 says that you are not to, you're not to have your hair disheveled as a priest who is a chief among you and you're not to tear your robes. No sign of sorrow or mourning or, or any sign of distress. But that's what Caiaphas does. Now, that's incongruent in its accusation because, you know, he's accusing of blasphemy. He himself does something. But think of the, think of the irrationality of his religion because as you go down, when you get to the latter chapter in Matthew and also John chapter 18, 
that they bring Jesus to Pilate's house or the governor's house, but they don't enter in. They, it says there, lest they would be defiled so that they, they can then go and uh, keep the Passover. So he, what Caiaphas is doing is that he prefers the outer conformity of the law rather than the inner purity of the spirit. The external practices are much easier. I mean, isn't, isn't that so, right? I mean, it's easier to show on the outside who we are than to reflect the inner beauty of holiness. And then the next time we hear is in Matthew chapter 28. 11 to 14, I won't read that, but this is where he is paying off the guards who came and told him about the resurrection. He just buys them off, or he says, go lie about the resurrection. His theology had become a barrier. We read in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, that he's a Sadducee. That means they didn't believe in the resurrection. No wonder they call the sad, they're sad, you see. That was supposed to be a joke, all right. But they didn't believe in the resurrection. And because of that, you see, he, even in Acts chapter 4, we see that he is greatly annoyed because the apostles are speaking about the resurrection. Here, the gods come and tell him what happened. He chooses to reject. Let me read here a quote, because I think sometimes we are no different from Caiaphas. We pass God's word through the filter of our worldview and or our rationale before we think the word is palatable for obedience. So if you read God's word, we first pass it through the filter of our worldview, of our understanding, of our rationale. And if it fits with our worldview, if it fits with our rationale, then I'm going to obey. Otherwise, I might reject. It goes on to say, our filters are like paper shredders, not water purifiers as if God's word needed to be purified. What we take in is our own spittle. We swallow back in our sleep, regurgitate our own ideas and ideals, but certainly not the wholesome diet of God's word. So what Caiaphas has done is there's been, in fact, innumerable opportunities for him to recognize who Jesus is. He's confronted with the resurrection. And so there's, there's absolutely no excuse to say, oh, Caiaphas was only... Uh, fulfilling a role because somebody had to falsely accuse him so that Jesus would be uh, sent to be crucified and so then he could become the savior. So all of this was orchestrated. No, it is his own volition that he chooses to reject Jesus Christ. And God uses even that rejection for the savior to be sent to the cross, because even after the Pentecost, the post-Pentecost, 
Caiaphas remains hard-hearted and in Acts chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, John, Peter and John are brought in front of, front of them because he had just uh, healed a lame man. And he was talking about the resurrection. People have come to know the Lord. And so he asks this question, what is the power? Tell me, what, what, by what power are you doing what you're doing? And you get to verse 12. This, it says that they recognized that they were with Jesus. And yet, even though Peter would share the gospel, he would tell exactly what power and why and the power of the resurrection. It says that, that they were threatened and finding no way to punish them, they let go. And then chapter 5 to chapter 7, we don't know how closely it follows chapter 4. We don't know who the high priest is. It might be Caiaphas. It could be the one who came after because it just says Caiaphas. But there we read about how all the apostles were arrested. It, we read about the first martyrdom of Stephen. And we read about how they abet with Saul in going and persecuting the Christians even up to Damascus. Uh, history would tell us that Caiaphas was the high priest of 36. Jonathan was in 37. Theophilus was in 8041. Now Caiaphas was the son of uh, Annas, who was the, the son-in-law, sorry. Jonathan and Theophilus were his sons. So it's all within the family. I think it's absolutely clear that this is not who we're supposed to be. We're not to be like Caiaphas. But let's go back to our passage. Let's comb over again and look at Cephas, who is Peter. Now again, we'll spill a little bit more because the first time we hear about Cephas is when Jesus calls him in chapter 4, verse 18. And immediately he leaves his net and his boat and follows Jesus. Now we know he was a married man, or at least he had a mother-in-law. Right, if he had a mother-in-law, we're assuming that he had a wife. But what he caught is how they lived. So before we jump on Peter about and how we drop the ball many times and how we deny the Lord Jesus Christ, we gotta we gotta recognize that he is miles ahead of us in his passion, in his in his desire to to do what is right for God and for the Lord. But then. Uh, and as you keep going, we, we get to uh, chapter 14, verse 28, and we've already done this. Peter was the one who recognizes Jesus walking on the water. Now that speaks awesome because that means there was this intimate recognition of who the Lord is. And he says, Lord, can I come into the water? Like he, he is willing to get out. He's willing to, to, put him, to, to put himself outside of the comfort zone. He's the one in chapter 16 who says, you are Christ, the Son of God, or the Christ of God. He was a natural leader. He was part of the inner circle. That's Peter. But yet I know there's, there's a part of Peter that we ask, like, you know, his natural impulses, unbridled passion, his untamed emotion, right? I mean, he... he Jesus, he confesses Jesus, saying that you are the Christ of the living God. And Jesus says, that revelation is from the Father. He just speaks the revelation from the Father. And not too long after, he speaks like the devil. And Jesus would have to say, get thee behind me, Satan. 
that's peter uh, next chapter is chapter 17 and verse 4 as on the mount of transfiguration uh mark is okay luke is a little more harsh uh, it says peter didn't know what to say so he said can i make make you a, make a tent for the three of you elijah moses and the lord jesus christ now we we don't know why the tent but maybe he's thinking of the tab the feast of the tabernacle where he's thinking about the kingdom because jesus has been speaking about the kingdom so it is about the time when the when the feast of tabernacle is about this coming kingdom where god and man would reside together now maybe that's what he's thinking but he forgets the king he he equates jesus christ with elijah and moses and the father had to interrupt him and said this is my son in whom i'm well pleased that's peter but keep that in mind as we look at our passage for today right and so we look we get him first in verse 31 and this is important and then jesus said to him said to them you will all highlight that it's all you will all fall away because of me this night for it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered listen to this peter trusted his loyalty as being more than others faithfulness his he trusted his loyalty more because jesus has just said you will all fall and in verse 33 peter answered though they all will fall away because of you i will never fall away i'm not sure whether you you know even in your mind if you ever said this about no i don't think i'm i'm, I'm i don't think i can fall for that for that pornography that guy has just fallen for i don't think i'll be like that pastor who who went into um committed adultery i'm 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 not like that i'm not like him i'm not like her me no no not me trusted his own loyalty more come down to verse 34 and 35 jesus said to him truly i tell you this very night before the rooster crows you will deny me three times Peter trusted his own strength more than Jesus's words. He trusted his own strength more than Jesus's word because this is what Peter is saying back to Jesus. I mean, Peter's got to know this by now. You can never wager against Jesus and win. But in verse 35 it says Peter said to them, uh, said to him, even if I must die, I will not deny you. I'd rather die than deny. That's what Peter is saying. he trusted his loyalty more than the others he trusted his strength more than jesus's words but does not end there verse 58 he trusted his own wisdom more than jesus's warning because in verse 58 we read there and peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end in the parallel passage in john chapter 13 peter would ask simon peter would say lord where are you going and jesus answered where i'm going you cannot follow me now but you'll follow me afterward 
And Jesus is saying, your time is not now. You know, you will go, you, you will follow me after. But Peter is not ready to wait. Peter says, no, I'm going to come. I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow you wherever you are. And Jesus says, no, but he says, yes. And he finds himself in trouble. Uh, you know, I think it'd be good as we think about, you know, heeding God's word in our own strength and to, to trust the warning that Jesus gives in our own wisdom to wait for the time that Jesus would say or give us. Then you come down to verses 69 to 75, and this is where Peter is denying. I want you to see here that he trusted his courage more than lean on Jesus' prayer for him. He trusted his courage more than lean on Jesus' prayer for him. His courage was that, you know what? I, I, I got it in me. No one's going to make me deny. I was just a girl, a servant girl in verse 69. That's all it took. Servant girl. And, and Jesus had, had said in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 22, in the same context, Jesus says, Simon, I want you to know that Satan demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, as if to say that and when, and when, and not if, and when you turned away, strengthen your brothers. Now that's, that's affirming. That's great. And so what is happening in that context? Jesus is saying that Peter, you might fall, but I want you to, uh, you, you, I, I don't want you to waver in your faith. I don't want you to fail in your faith. But when you fall, I want you to get up because I'm going to meet you in Galilee. That's what we read in verse 32. After I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. That's the promise Jesus gives. But he goes ahead. Trusting his own courage. I want you to see the increasing emphasis of Peter's denial. In verse 70, but he denied it before them, all saying that I do not know what you mean. As if to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I just don't know. I, like, I don't know. Then in verse 71, it says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, um, and again he denied, verse 72, he denied it with an oath. Um, right, with an oath. So now he's saying, uh, you can take my word, um, so, sorry, verse 71, he went out again, another girl, servant girl saw him and said to the bystander, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it. And then it says, with an oath here. So Peter adjures himself. Earlier, Jesus was adjured, put under oath, and he tells the truth under duress. And here, Peter lies about Jesus. But notice the grace that follows in verse 75 and Jesus, uh, 74, 
and the rooster crowed the latter part in 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Again, Luke gives us a little more insight. It says there, the Lord turned and looked at Peter at that time. Not a look of, I told you so, with anger. Not a look of like guilt and disappointment. But a look to say, Peter, remember, I'm still going to meet you in Galilee when I'm raised again. I will keep my promise, even though you might fall. And so what happens in 75, verse 75, is Peter remembers and he repents. The appointment is kept and Peter is restored as we go through the rest of the gospel that we see that, isn't that? Isn't that beautiful? This, this meeting in Galilee would be repeated again and again because it needs to be told to us. Because oftentimes we think that we have denied him so many times. We have let go. We have been unfaithful so many times that, that Jesus is going to shrug his shoulder and say, all right, I'm going to give up on you, even though you are his child. No. He reminds the disciples again and again after resurrection. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 7, we see there that the angels pass on this message to the women saying, go tell the disciples that he is going to meet. he's gone ahead. He's going to meet you in Galilee. And then Jesus himself in 28, verse 10, Jesus tells the women, go tell the disciples that I'll meet with him, meet with them, sorry, in Galilee. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, this beautiful verse, it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. I'll meet him. You see, Peter's mouth matched his foot size. You know that. He had this habit of putting his foot in his mouth so many times. But that did not deter the faithfulness of the Savior. This Peter's story is similar to the story of all the child of God, every child of God. That every child of God can persevere by the grace of God that they Though they fall, they can get up. Though they are weary, they don't give up. Though they falter, they do not stop. It's the experience that Paul would write about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. An older Peter understood that in First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he would say, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter understood his God. And it's good to be like Peter. It's good to have understood 
that even in our failing, there is a God who does not fail, but there is a greater example than Peter. We don't stop at Peter. I don't want my son to grow up to be like Peter. True, I want him to learn like Peter, but not be like Peter. I have a greater example. You have a greater example, and that's Christ himself. So not Caiaphas, the rejecter, not Peter, not Cephas, but Christ. Look at verse 2 in chapter 26 and verse 2. It says there that he was the one who will be crucified. Son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's the one who came willingly to die. The one who was willing to be crucified on your behalf for your son sins as your substitute. Verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. There is no one who was anointed for burial when alive. And here is one who was anointed for his burial. Verse 15. <clears throat> and said, who will give me, uh, what will you give me if I deliver up? deliver him over to you. This is Judas speaking to the high priest where he was valued at the price of a slave. This Jesus. And with a kiss, he was betrayed by the disciple. Verse 49, this Judas does that. That's this Jesus. Verse 29, we don't have time, but you can read that later. He, this is where he institutes the new covenant where the bread and the wine that we partook of this morning represents the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. He is to say that, yes, my death will bring you life and let it be a reminder of a promise that there is going to come a time when I will dine with you. We will be seated around his, around his table, as it were, to sup with him. That's Jesus. Verse 30. And when they sung a hymn, that gets me all the time. Here is the Savior going to his death, singing. And we read in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, so that you and I, the peers of this world, even Caiaphas, if he had not rejected, if he had received the grace and the mercy of God, this Savior's blood is enough. There is no one, no one, who is so far out of the grace of God or the work of the shed blood of Christ that does not cover his sin. In verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's no angst, it's no sacrifice, right? I mean, if it's like I'm going to waltz into to the cross, then then there's no there's no. It's not a sacrifice. Sacrifice means it costs. There is pain. There's price. There is there is more than just just doing a task. And if it's not a, and a shaken will, if he had stopped not doing what, what he did, Father, if it's possible, but then let your will be done. 
if he had not prayed that, then we wouldn't have had a savior. But he is unlike the first Adam who did what he wanted to do. He did his own will. He wanted to, he, he, he took what he was not supposed to take. And here is the last Adam. No more Adams after this. This is the last Adam. He does the will of the father. And he gives what was rightly his so that you who had nothing to receive this morning can receive life. Verse 52. He says, put the sword back. We looked at that, but let's move on because of lack of time. Verse 59. They were seeking to falsely accuse him. He stands there defenseless on your behalf because you were defenseless. You had absolutely no defense. This savior who asked for the sword to be put down, he had at his disposal angels ready to strike. But he presents himself as defenseless just as you and I were. In verse 64, verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They stood condemned, and we stand with hope, anticipation of the coming Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. What a contrast! What joy. So, who do you want to be? Caiaphas, all he had to do was confess like the centurion. Surely this is the son of man, or son of God. Or he they just had to believe the gods who had witnessed the resurrection, or believed in the multitude of priests who came to know Christ. In Acts chapter 6, we read that, and he could have been one of those, or he could have been with Stephen. He could have joined in the arena as the stones were raining on Stephen. He would say, I'm going to take that place because I see that this Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Christ of God. But he rejected. And then you have Peter who in his weaknesses and frailty as he tried with his own strength failed, but later grew to understand that it is not by his own strength, but through the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I, I plead with you, my brothers and sisters. I, I plead with this, if there's anyone here who is still, who's still struggling to understand if this is true or not, but I want you to, I want you to see this Christ that I have come to understand, this one who's the faithful one, who has met me in my own Galilee. He has. And there are stories here of people who will tell you of how Christ met with them in their own, in their own journeys and has given them the hope of resurrection. That because he died, we will live. As we trust in him, it is to him that we bring our loyalties. It is him to whom we'll be conformed. We will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as you proceed on, 
Just as Peter, who realized that he as a rock is not enough, he needs the rock of ages. Let's take a stand on this rock that is higher than us. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for your son. Thank you that he is the rock of ages. He is the rock on which we stand. He is the strong tower in which we can come take our refuge. He is the one who is the, 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 um, under whose wings we have come to take refuge. He is the one in whose tents we have found our home. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that if there's, if there's anyone here who needs to understand this truth, would you open their heart? Would they, would they, oh God, join in the throng with the praises of the one who is worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory? Be glorified, O oh God, we pray. We thank you again in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen.